You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to our podcast, Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan Oog. Welcome to your favorite consumable psychology podcast. All right, we have an enormous amount of content to cover, so no housekeeping, no anything. We're going to dive right into this. Ready? Yes. Perfect. Okay. Go. So one thing that we're going to begin with by talking about is that when we are doing anything at all as humans, there are all sorts of ways that we can behave and that those different actions that we do have varying levels of intensity, both mentally and physically. And in that, there is an inquiry that scientists have raised about whether there's a sort of baseline that we have. If there's this sort of sleep mode or natural baseline, that's sort of like if you had a car that was parked, that was idling and the engine's just running. Does our brain have a, a that sort of thing? And this has a whole lot of implications potentially. It's been discussed out there. And really the, what we're trying to focus on is why would brain activity in certain regions differ during these different states, when you're at rest, when you have goal-directed behavior, maybe when you're dreaming. And this is just a really interesting area to a lot of researchers in the last decade, two decades or so. And a big point here is simply defining what at rest means and what baseline means with respect to sort of what our brain is doing, because this seems fairly subjective. And there was this conventional use of this term back in the early 2000s and research that was being done at that point. But scientists and people researching this have sort of philosophized and discovered that during a consistent baseline period prior to other research procedures, there's the subjective thing. And so it's difficult then to really define what at rest means or doing nothing actually is because we're never actually doing doing nothing at any point, which I think is maybe even a big take home that we could have made early on in this podcast that we never do nothing. We are always, always, always doing something. So Ryan, what are we talking about today? So the idea is centered around this term called the default mode network, sometimes talked about as a default network as well. And it's a collection of areas of the brain that are commonly observed to demonstrate higher activation and act as a functional system. So they're observed during imaging tests such as the fMRI, which we've covered pretty extensively on our past episode, when an individual is, air quote, at rest and tend to be suspended when an individual engages in other things such as, air quote, goal-directed tasks, things like that. So it is presumably this at-rest state and activity that occurs only during that at-rest state, specifically in our brain. So As you just mentioned, there's this idea of there being a difference in what our brain is doing when we are in this do nothing or at rest or baseline stage versus some specific goal directed task. And that this default mode network seems to exist throughout various regions of our brain that connects it. And some of the regions that have been identified are specifically the prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate cortex and inferior parietal lobule, sometimes also includes the lateral temporal cortex, hippocampal formation, and the precuneus. And so that was a lot of jargon for people who are maybe not into neurology so much, but hopefully for those people who are, that that was easy reference. Essentially, the way that I read this is that it really connects the vast majority of the various domains, if you will, of your brain. It's spread throughout pretty much your entire brain. That's how I read that. And so historically, this was discovered inadvertently during tests for brain function during other activities. So 
Baseline for such studies involves a rest period in which scientists began to notice that there was blood flow around these unique areas of the brain prior to the implementation of whatever they were studying. And the effect was noticed across many participants. And what we mean by this is basically what was being measured prior to the start of other studies. They realized that all of that prior baseline before they actually were investigating what they wanted to or started looking at what they want to investigate, they realized there was a lot of correlations here when they started to stack these up. Exactly. And interestingly, that these unique areas of the brain that they actually showed lower levels of activity when someone was engaged in a particular task that required their attention. However, then they also saw that their the these parts of the brain all of a sudden had higher levels of activity when this person was awake, but not necessarily involved in any specific mental exercise. So they were sort of in this sort of rest state. And so a lot of questions arose. Could we liken these states to being engaged in leisure versus being engaged in a more burdensome work task? How does our brain work differently during those times? Regardless, we'd argue it's just behavior all the time under different conditions and contingencies, but we're going to unpack this a little bit more today. Yeah, so there's most certainly an agreement that pretty much at this point, everyone has seen the research, we've identified that there are unique areas of the brain that are responsible for different behaviors, different things that we do. And one example of this is that damage or trauma to a specific part of the brain can be traced to unique impairments that would result from trauma to that part of the brain. Although it's also worth mentioning that this is not 100% predictable. You can't necessarily say just because there's damage that happens here that you will then definitely see this particular outcome in that person's other behaviors. And there's a whole lot of different things that are being linked to or attributing to this according to the information that's out there. So they list things like daydreaming, recalling memories, making considerations for the future, planning, monitoring the environment, things that have to do with theory of mind, perspective taking. And this research is showing that the default mode network is active during states such as sleep, but connecting it to other unique parts of dreams and things is difficult. And so what we're kind of understanding this to be ourselves is it's almost like this mind is wandering sort of state. Right. So it's going on when we're not specifically focused. So there was this article in a source called The Neuroscientifically Challenged. And in this article, they say that the default mode network is responsible for all things that, quote, we often do when we find ourselves thinking without any explicit goal of thinking in mind, end quote. And so that this represents a massive opposition to the deterministic belief that all behavior, public or otherwise, occurs within some specific context. Okay, we need to break this down and specifically tear this apart. <laughs> because there's a whole lot of assumptions that are occurring with this idea that just because we have activity in the brain that's going on, that that necessarily means that we're not responding to the context of our situation. For one thing, that assumes that there is a state that is going on that is we are not responding to the context. And I don't think that that is a founded assumption, especially if you think about when our mind is wandering, when we're just sort of daydreaming or not necessarily thinking about anything specific, but we find ourselves just sort of allowing our thoughts to free flow. Our thoughts still free flow around things that we've experienced, so they can only be influenced by our experiences to have that. And it doesn't make any sense to therefore claim that it's somehow extricated from our experiences that we have had up to that point just because they're not responding to an immediate stimulus in the moment doesn't mean that they're not responding to the context of our experiences we've had up to that point. Very well stated. Couldn't agree more. 
Well, and I think another thing on here is the idea that when you look at when people report those experiences, and for myself, I'll say from personal experience, when my mind wanders and it just sort of just goes on the route that it goes on, there's always sort of a link between one thought to the next and how those are bridged. And sometimes they're fast and a little bit seemingly unpredictable, but I've done this thing a lot of the times when I found my mind wandering and I tried to trace back and figure out what happened to set that in motion. And I have never failed to identify some external trigger that happened where something I heard or something that I saw or something that somebody said or something led to a thought that reminded me of something else. And so what happened then is I just went down this rabbit hole of, and we'll go back to our memory episode term here of cues of things that are relevant to me and that I've just sort of let my mind just sort of flow on those topics, but they're all topics that cued one another and they did so from my experiences. So I don't think that just because we do this, that that is in any way challenges the idea that our behavior or our thoughts or our mind wandering exists outside of the context of our lives. That just is nonsense. So this default mode network is really situated in this neurological approach and this neurological basis. And several studies since the early 2000s have debated what the true purpose of this network is, and despite its restriction to resting state activity. And there's an important thing here where like, the concept does help to oppose a more antiquated idea that the brain is not active while at rest. So when we're sleeping, dreaming, things like this, I've heard the statistic, I do not know if this is solid at all, but it's supposedly that the brain is about 2% of our total mass or weight and that it attributes uh, about 20% of our caloric intake, regardless of what we're doing daily. I've actually, I've heard that from various sources as well, to the point that I think that it's probably fairly reliable number. Mm -hmm. I've also heard, again, I haven't checked on the source for this, but I heard that people who are in like chess championships will burn something like four to 5,000 calories a day, and they end up consuming a ton more because they're thinking so hard for so long. And that's just a massive energy suck for their body. Again, I haven't verified that as being accurate. All right. So let's dive into the neurology research specifically. Right. So there is some research being done to try and detect whether there are links between activity in the default mode network and then certain diagnosable conditions such as someone who is suffering from depression, anxiety, or schizophrenia. And at the beginning of the 2000s, when this was really beginning, there were few or almost no published studies about those connections. But by 2014, there were more than 350 studies that had been published on this. And specific studies countering the idea of the default mode network as well. Some say it's, quote, difficult to define resting wakefulness as constituting a unique state of activity as energy consumption during the state is similar to energy consumption during other waking states, end quote. And I think that one's important, and we'll come back to this as well, this idea that we're making a huge assumption that that resting is any different from any other type of activity in at least how it functions for us. But let's move on to this next section here, which is how the default mode network has really been appropriated by pop psychology to use in combination with the idea of meditation or other calming therapies as an area of the brain that needs to be activated in order to relax or to release or access a deeper state. And so there's a little bit of woo in here that like because we have a default mode network, we need to really ramp that sucker up by doing these things. And not necessarily that they're wrong or that that's bad. There's just it's a huge assumption that isn't necessarily backed by a lot of 
specific research to suggest that there is a positive outcome to trying to increase a lot more of that activity. Yeah, and I think the concern there is that it can just it can get extended or overextended quickly. Yeah, I think to the point where people if they lean into this so much that they do so to the exclusion of other of seeking maybe other medical treatments that they really need. Yeah. So Alzheimer's is the first one we're going to talk about. And the peptide amyloid beta, the buildup of which is thought to cause Alzheimer's, is often seen as occurring within the default mode network areas. So given that these areas of the brain are often associated with memory storage and retrieval, the default mode network is highlighted when observing effects of Alzheimer's. Now, I do want to point out, I recently contacted some literature that suggested that what we've been seeing with these amyloid beta buildup and the brain during Alzheimer's is actually not the cause of Alzheimer's, but is a symptom of Alzheimer's, and that the amyloid might actually be doing good things to the brain in protecting it and maybe even slowing down Alzheimer's. Now, I don't read this literature very closely. This is something I learned about recently. I think it was, I was listening to a neurology podcast where they had someone on talking about this, so this seems like this is fairly new. I don't know how well established it is, but just to say that it's we should probably do Alzheimer's down the road, but this concept that the amyloid beta buildup is causing Alzheimer's might actually not be correct, and that by trying to reduce the amyloid buildup, we might actually be speeding Alzheimer's along. And hopefully not. You know, hopefully there's it's more complicated or there's more to learn, but just something that I saw. So let's talk about the default mode network and autism, which is autism. <laughs> I know a, a professor who would always call it autism. Autism. So studies show a lower connection between the default mode network areas and people with an autism diagnosis, which may contribute to poor social interaction and communication. However, of course, it's unclear if this is a cause or effect relationship, whether this causes the autism or as a result of autism, or if there's some other variable that causes this differentiation here. I think it's worth pointing out that because of the broad spectrum of autism and what that looks like, how that shows up for different people, that it makes a lot more sense to simply say that these are people for whom they have a very different and sometimes underdeveloped set of skills and that therefore their brains are going to look a little bit differently when we look at what part of their brains are working at different times. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that the default mode network plays any kind of causal relationship in that or that trying to work on the default mode network is going to be an active area of lucrative pursuit in terms of trying to help those people with autism, I guess, have a better quality of life. There's also this area that gets brought up quite a bit when we're talking about the default mode network with yoga. So there's more neuroscientific research needed to determine the effects of yoga, but they've seen correlations of people who practice yoga in performance on cognitive tests and regulating emotions. A higher volume hippocampus is often seen in aerobic exercise, though yoga is not considered explicitly aerobic. And a larger hippocampus is associated with learning and memory. Thus, a smaller hippocampus has been linked to depression, stress, and Alzheimer's. So just grow a bigger hippocampus, everybody. Problem solved. Problem solved, yeah, right? Sometimes I feel like I don't know what there is to do with some of the recommendations they have, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. like, I guess do aerobic exercise. That wasn't something that we knew about before, so I'm glad they pointed that out. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't mean to be so snarky. It just seems like I don't know how useful some of that stuff is. Yeah. I feel like it's, if anything, it's maybe just useful as a, a stat, a descriptive thing. And maybe we could predict a little bit off of things if it was that solid, but we're never to that point yet, right? Yeah. And, th and that's a great point. And I think the other thing too is sometimes I get a little frustrated with people who seem like they're overzealous in their cause-effect relationship determination when things are simply correlated. Well, and it also gets overextended real quick. So when I was looking up a little bit on this, 
it's pretty clear that there's this trend also on people creating different forms of media, YouTube videos, Instagram posts, courses, things like that, that are essentially extending off of this, saying that you can start to dissolve things like the ego F through certain practices and get back into this like default mode network as if it's a indicator of things such as like a good state of mindfulness and such, which I just don't see how we have evidence of these things at all. Like I just look at this as a pure overextension, potentially just marketing woo galore. Like that's all it is. Well, and especially things like the ego and unconscious and stuff like that. It that seems if you're measuring something that by definition can't be measured, then what are you measuring? You know? Yeah. And like the larger scientific community doesn't really chase this these terms of the the ego and such anymore from these Freudian days. And not to set up too much of a straw man, like a lot of what we're talking about here is just talking about the specific brain regions and where we see correlations of those to other things. Just that it does start to feel like it leans into the territory of, oh, this is what's going on with our unconscious. And this is why we need to do these meditative things is so that we can try and diffuse these unconscious processes and not to go after like, I don't, as far as like language is concerned and all of that, I think there's a lot of legitimacy in terms of how we use those things to improve our lives. And I don't think that there's any evidence to suggest that there is an ego or that we can diffuse it, that sort of thing. So uh, a couple of quick things on the yoga thing we were discussing. There was some evidence to suggest that there might be some changes in the, the amygdala in the sense that it might embiggen, as you might say, that it enlarges, I'm borrowing my term, and that that's related to processing emotions and reactions to things like fear and pleasure. I've honestly just seen a lot of where you tend to see people who exercise frequently have less extreme reactions to things. And I don't I don't know exactly, again, this correlation causation thing to unpack there that we don't have the research on. And then also evidence of the activation of the prefrontal cortex in the default mode network. And that this is, of course, related to things like decision making and emotional regulation. So the, simply the idea here being that practicing aerobic exercise, which might include things like yoga, practicing things like meditation might improve the... I guess, robustness of those areas of the brain resulting in these positive outcomes. But just like the whole issue we brought up of causing damage to the brain does not result in predictable outcomes and behavior. And trying to work on these specific parts of your brain does not necessarily mean you get a predictable outcome and behavior that's in the positive direction. I think the most clear evidence we have, and this is sort of a take home that I'm jumping way ahead with, but the most clear evidence we have is that doing the thing that you want to do more of allows you to do more of that thing <laughs> as like a positive feedback loop. So the more you do something that you want to do, the more you're going to do that thing that's valuable to you. I want to bring you back into this energy use discussion for a second of the brain. So Morgan and Felcher in 2007 said, quote, the substantial energy use of the brain at rest does not appear to us to distinguish this state from other task states whose overall energy expenditure might be measured. Yes. And that's exactly one of the earlier points we're making is that if we think about from what we understand about a science of behavior, that all behavior, like there's an assumption in here. And the assumption is that all behavior qualifies equally for measurement and analysis. 
And therefore, it doesn't make any sense from that perspective when we're focusing on these observable events to try and separate activity during rest from any other what you might call goal-directed task. Where you draw that line is so fuzzy and subjective that it doesn't even make sense to suggest that there is a line. There's simply a spectrum of things that require more or less intensity. It's all just different behavior that activates different areas of the brain, as we've discussed, and with more or less energy needed. And usually the more you do of something, the less energy it takes to do that thing because you become more efficient at it. It's the same thing as our hands and legs and our feet as we use them. They can accomplish many exclusive but unrelated tasks, if that makes sense. Okay, so let's get into a little bit more of this behavior science view of thinking about the default mode network. And some of the examples that people often use is this idea of the brain keeping itself occupied via the activity in the default mode network. And another way to think about this in a way that makes a little more, I guess, is a little more objective and observable is thinking about this as precurrent behavior or even thinking about this kind of like a reflex. So thinking about the Pavlov thing in that you are responding to individual stimulus cues. And so what I mean is that you might have a reaction to a cue without specifically thinking about what that reaction is going to be because of an extensive history with that signal, whatever it might be. Okay. Or you might even have one where you do specifically think about it, but in any case, the unique occurrence of these responses that we have is more likely to happen with any given context when we have some kind of relation to that context and those cues in that context. And so essentially just thinking about this in terms of the fact that these are things that we do and we're responding to our learned experience with the world around us, but we do so from a point of view that sometimes isn't just overtly thinking about how we are responding to that event. So this really goes back to what I was mentioning about how we sort of follow that chain of thoughts in our mind where each one of those things becomes a cue for the next thing. And it's all arbitrary, but it's all based on the context that we're in at the moment and the context that we've been in the past and how we create those cues for ourselves. And so just thinking about this in terms of we're responding to something and that something isn't something that other people necessarily know about because it's from our own past. And it may not even be something that people can see because the way that we're responding to it is not obvious to them. Does that make sense? Essentially what I'm saying here is that you can't necessarily tell just by looking at someone that they're uh, reacting to something. And you also, even if you could see the reaction, regardless of whether you could see the reaction, you may not know what it is they're reacting to because those things can be so idiosyncratic to each individual and thinking about them as being situated in the context for that person. And so therefore, that's just a way of thinking about this, I think, in a behavioral way that keeps it grounded in that context. So there's other interesting tidbits of things that were found along the way while researching this topic. So for autism from a UCSD health article, there was novel visual gaze tracking and brain imaging research showed that toddlers with autism spectrum disorder ignored socially relevant stimuli and preferred to look at moving colorful shapes. This was found to be correlated with displaying more severe social symptoms and lower levels of brain activity connecting social and visual brain networks. So regardless of if the default mode network demands to be seen as responsible for some other unique class of covert behavior, it does seem to have some correlation in those unique areas when social impairments are also observed. But this is no different than tracing other areas of the brain to certain behavior, which is a point we made earlier, yes? Yeah, exactly. And so we have seen 
This talk about this with autism has come up a few times in here. And I think because individuals with autism are uniquely situated to be of interest to people trying to study the default mode network, because they seem to be interested in things so different in, in a different way and different things than other people of similar ages and even just people that would not qualify for that diagnosis. And specifically with teens and young adults with autism might often pay attention to colorful shapes more often. And so some have argued that it makes sense why they seem to enjoy children's cartoons that are no longer age appropriate. However, there is an interesting question to bring up about this, which is why don't we see these individuals maintain interest in more age appropriate content that is topographically similar, which is to say it looks the same. It's just meant for people who are closer to their age. So for example, if it doesn't really matter what the content is, then couldn't they also be perfectly satisfied watching South Park or Archer or Family Guy or Rick and Morty or something like that? And, you know, one could argue that the thematic content is wildly more complex than some of those simpler shows. And they're more mature than shows like Blue's Clues or Dora or or some of those other things. Again, it's worth pointing out how much these individuals who would have this diagnosis are really attending to the content itself and not just the visual aspect. And, and I think it could be interesting for neuroscience to try and unpack that a little bit if they want to go that route. So that brings us around to take-home points. Let's get started here. So it's still a relatively new concept within the neuroscience world, and most definitely a free agent term in the therapeutic community seeking newer buzzwords for yoga classes, aromatherapies, whatever can be sold to help people achieve a more meditative state. And while the brain demonstrates different levels of activity under unique circumstances, so too does response effort vary across different activities and contexts. And I also think it's worth pointing out here that as we have mentioned before, however useful this might be, the better you get at something, the easier it becomes for you to do that thing such that and, and there are studies showing this, again, as useful as it might be, and I think that's questionable, but that we tend to use our brain less. There's less activity when we are in sort of that flow state of something we're good at. And this is, we mentioned this in our fluency episode, that as you get fluent at something, we actually require less neurological energy to do that thing because our brains get more and more efficient. And so it's suggesting that if we were to see this high level of efficiency and fluency with something is just now part of this this different part of the brain and therefore becomes a baseline doesn't make sense in that situation either and so there's just there are unique circumstances under which we might observe different levels of brain activity and it doesn't necessarily make sense to say that they necessarily belong to this specific network or that this network causes or is good for those activities in that way and I, you know i think we also should point out there is obvious research showing that there are parts of the brain that are more active during these rest states. But the problem is we don't know what rest states are. So we do know that there's something. We just don't know how it is or where to draw the line in terms of where it exists. So the next point is really that scientists see little so far to suggest that the default mode network is being any more unique than other functional networks in this area of neuroscience. The idea of it as the brain's true baseline for which activity levels only go up from is not supported strongly enough by empirical research thus far. And we'll be humble in saying that right now we're sort of running counter to what seems to be a fairly popular trend in neuroscience research by people who have dedicated their careers to this. And so it's possible we're missing something. But from 
I think both a philosophical level and a simple epistemological level, it's hard to grab onto anything of substance here to feel like we can really get on board with some of the claims that are being made. You know, we work a lot with individuals who have intellectual or developmental disabilities who spend a lot of time seemingly disengaged from an observable activity. But if we then were to look at their brain and see that potentially their default mode network was firing away, would we say that they're not engaged in goal-directed behavior, even though they clearly are focused on something specific? So who are we to judge, essentially? Or even more than that, what do we gain from making this evaluation of calling something goal-directed or, or paying attention or not? We want to plan for the future, think about others, and acknowledge the environment. And in these moments, we're attending to unique contextual cues and thus part of our brains might be more active than if we were doing something like driving a car or playing a video game or writing a paper or something. But perhaps we can't always assume that nothing is nothing, which I think is a really, really great sentiment to really convey. And that was, you know, that part right there was Alan's words. And to suggest here that it feels like a potentially unfounded assumption to say that that idea that there is a rest or baseline is somehow so unique that it, I guess, has all these other cascading effects down the road, if that makes sense. Yeah. Love it, man. All right, cool. Well, this this was kind of a difficult one to tackle. I mean, I think we, we had a lot of research to unpack and a lot of concepts to try and tackle, and we're kind of going against the grain and as far as neuroscience goes. And I, I hope we did a decent job really presenting the arguments that they've made in favor of this concept by suggesting you know the parts of the brain that are involved and how they looked at it in order to measure it. And I also wanted to really present the other side of this, which is that this makes some assumptions that just feel like they're maybe a little bit too big of assumptions from a behavior science or an objective science, a deterministic worldview, whatever you have, what, you know, what have you, a worldview of looking at objective variables. Well stated. All right. It's time for quickly my favorite segment, the recommendation section. Recommendations. I've been wanting to recommend some movies and shows and music and stuff like that, but I don't want to do that so often. So this time, what I am recommending very generally is coffee. I think it's awesome, and I would recommend it from my own personal opinion. My favorite coffee is Hawaiian coffee. I also prefer light roast coffee. But really, I think I just want to support coffee because I think it's awesome. (laughs) And there's... A small, but maybe not small chance that coffee plants are starting to go extinct, which would make me really sad. Oh, really? Yeah, there's like, there's some issues with climate change and it affecting some of the crops that are being produced and making it look like that might be something that goes away. One of my favorite uh, memes on the internet, I think is what it was, or that was circulating, literally says, uh, it's got like a bunch of coffee beans and it says, don't let anyone ever tell you that magic isn't real because every day these little brown beans bring me back to life. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. I like it. Uh, I think about that all the time. And I'm also actually a really big fan of coffee myself. There's a place out of Bentonville, Arkansas that I found called Onyx. It's a coffee lab. And I get a new random dealer choice shipped to my house every week. Absolutely love it. That is not my recommendation, though. That's just my extension off your recommendation. Okay, sweet. Thanks. My recommendation is to go watch the music video for the Chainsmokers 
more recent. It came out like, I don't know, probably two months ago from the time of when everyone's listened to this. It's a, a song called Family, and it's by the Chainsmokers with Kaigo. It's just one of those that was like a really well done, regardless of what you like about that style of music or the artist. It just left me with some good feels to like want to go out there and hug somebody and say like, I appreciate you. Wow. Yeah. I haven't watched music videos in a while. I, I feel like I was, I don't know, I wasn't very impressed with them and then just kind of wasn't interested. So I, I probably missed some really good ones. Yeah. It's just one of those I clicked into and I was like, this like moved me. It was impactful. I think it just has a good message for whoever. Cool. The lyrics of the video or both? The lyrics, but more so the video, the visuals that go along with the lyrics, I thought was was really well done. And the call to action at the end, that's pretty cool. Oh. It's three minutes. Go check it out. Sweet. Got it. All right, cool. Well, I think that's all we've got. Thank you so much for recording with me, Ryan. Thank you, everyone who is listening for listening. Of course, you can find out more about this and all of our other episodes and other content and all of our cool stuff by going to our website, www.wwdpodcast.com. You can find us on any other platform, which you may recommend other people. We're on Smart Speakers and we're on Spotify and and Spreaker and Dees It or something. Anyway, you can reach out to us on all the social media platforms. I check the email and our SoundCloud. And then Ryan and Shane check a lot of like Facebook and Instagram sort of stuff. And I think someone's on Twitter. Yeah, we've been pretty active. Yeah, Amber's quite active on Instagram. So oh, hit sweet. us up in a DM there if you'd like as well. So get, yeah, thank you all. Get to meet the team. I think that's it. This is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.